0: Well, I know this probably doesn't come as a surprise to you, but I love the church. Like, not just this church, I mean, the church around the world. Um, That said, I mean, there's so many good things to talk about what the church has done throughout history, but there's also some ways the church has failed over her 2,000-year history. Maybe not spoken up when she should have or maybe said too much when she shouldn't have But since our journey in Ephesians beginning last January, I have just grown more and more Appreciative of this thing that was God's idea called the church Um, Here are some reminders from uh, the earlier chapters in Ephesians about what Paul says about the church Paul says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He has chosen us before the foundation of the world, predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters, redeemed us through the blood of Jesus. He has forgiven us. He's made known to us the mystery of His will. He's given us His Holy Spirit. He raised Jesus from the dead. He's loved us. He's made us alive together with Christ. He's created us for good works, and He's made us united in Christ. Paul goes on to say, That in Christ, you and I are chosen. God's own inheritance. Christ's body. We were once dead, but now we are alive in Christ. We are God's workmanship. We are new creations. We are of God's household. We are a living temple, a dwelling place for God Himself. We are the manifold wisdom of God revealed let that blow your mind. Uh, and we are sons and daughters of the living God. Now, if all that is true, if the church and the power of the Spirit is all of those things, then the church ought to change the world. In fact, Jesus called us, called his disciples, salt and light. He didn't say, go be salt and light. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And certainly, when we look back in history at the church in the power of the Spirit, uh, we can say things like the church is partially or even primarily responsible for things like promoting literacy among the populace, responsible for higher education, promotion of science, hospitals, women's rights, and for all the church has done and more, we still have an incredibly long way to go. Would you stand with me as we read Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. With fear and trembling, in sincerity of your heart, as to Christ. Not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord, and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them, And give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Father, we need your guidance in this text. It sounds so weird to our 21st century Bellingham ears. Holy Spirit, I pray uh, that you would enlighten us, that you would help us to see what it is you're communicating to us through this text. Make us more like Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So obviously, this is a very strange text. Why on earth does this even matter to us? I'm hoping I'll make a case for that, Uh, but you know, this is one of those things I've been talking about almost every week, when we've made a commitment as a church to preach through a text, we can't just skip the ones that are weird. Unfortunately, I, I, trust me, I'd rather sometimes. Uh, the other question is, even though Paul never advocates for slavery, why doesn't he firmly stand against it here? Why doesn't he firmly stand against it? Well, let's get a quick recap of the situation, uh, the context of of this text. The verses we are focusing on this evening make up the third section in a three-part mini-series, if you will. And that mini-series is on household codes. See, in Paul's day, in the first century, philosophers and politicians viewed the family unit as the bedrock of the entire Roman Empire. They saw the the success of the empire rose and fell on the family unit. And there were three main things that these ethicists and um, philosophers and politicians would talk about. Husband and wife relationships, children and parent relationships, and slave and master relationships. Because almost every family had those elements in it. Any teaching that seemed to break up this family system, would be not only seen as suspect, it would be perceived as a threat to the empire and thus crushed. If you know anything about the history of Rome, they didn't mess around. They just squished their enemies. So Paul uses these three categories. He says, okay, these are the categories that are existing in the culture and where I'm ministering. I'm going to use these three categories, but I'm going to sneak in the gospel into each one of these areas. So he begins by saying that as a follower of Jesus, men and women alike should submit to one another. That's Chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another. He's talking to all Christians there. Men, women, boys and girls. Submit to one another. That in itself would have been absolutely radical in a culture that was so uh, class-driven, striated. You know, you've got your, your emperor and senator class and equestrian class and freed people and slaves and it's just all very structured. And to say submit to one another in itself completely radical. Now, just a disclaimer of sorts on this whole thing about slavery. As a pastor, I really want to get to the application. And I want to draw these parallels with, hey, we don't have slaves today, but we work, and we are bosses, and this kind of thing, just kind of make that jump. I can't do that. Fact, I've got professors who would yell at me back uh, from, from school. <laughs> I, I don't think that does justice to the text. So here's what we need to do. We need to to do justice to this text and actually look at what Paul's saying, what he meant and then see if uh, that leads us anywhere that's applicable today. So I've got to ask us two things. The first thing is, as Americans, we have to admit that our view of slavery is tainted by 19th century United States slavery, okay? So when I think of slavery, that's my first thing that pops into my head. The second thing we have to do is get a basic understanding of what slavery was like in Paul's day. So you ready for that little, little history lesson? Okay. So the first thing is, how did people become slaves in Paul's day? All kinds of different ways. Well, your parents could be slaves, so then you'd be born into a slave family. Um, Last week I talked about the high rates of infanticide, where people might have a girl or a child that they didn't want, and they would just leave it out in the wilderness to die. Well, slave traders would come and grab those babies and raise them up and sell them. Uh, Another way that this could happen is your parents could say, hey, we need some extra money, and we never liked you anyway. We're going to sell you into slavery. That can happen. Uh, it still does happen, by the way, in some nations, okay? Uh, another way that this can happen is a war captive. So Rome comes in, ca- captures your little fiefdom or whatever, and you are now a slave, uh, a, a captive. Uh, another way is that some people would actually sell themselves into slavery. Uh, some slaves in the Roman world had very high positions, had very high wages, and so I might be a poor free person, a poor merchant, hey, I can make more money uh, as an engineer who's a slave for the city water system or something like that. So people would sell themselves into slavery at times. Uh, The one thing I want to point out is that slavery is not race-related in the first century. It was kind of uh, an equal opportunity um, master or um, problem. Now, before the Roman Empire, the Greeks ruled the Mediterranean and the ancient Near East. And the Greeks had slaves, and they did not look well upon their slaves. In fact, uh, for all the wonderful things that Aristotle has given us in mathematics, well, basically one writer said, Aristotle might have known more than any other person in history. All right? He wrote almost on every single subject. You can talk, talk to Ryan Wasserman about that. But Aristotle, he had some moral issues that I, I would take him to task with. Um, and here's one thing that he wrote. Where then there is such a difference as that between soul and body or between men and animals as in the case of those whose business it is to use their body and who can do nothing better. The lower sort are by nature slaves. So he thinks that some people are by nature slaves. And it's better for them as for all inferiors that they should be under the rule of a master. It's clear then, to Aristotle, it's clear then that some men are by nature free, and others slaves, and that for the latter, slavery is both expedient and right. Okay. In the early years of the Roman Republic, slavery existed, but it wasn't very popular. It wasn't... uh, It wasn't... uh, you know, socially the thing. Hired laborers and peasant farmers would work the large plots of rich landowners. But something happened that caused slavery to really take off in Rome. Uh, Around the 2nd century BC, during the Second Punic War, uh, that war had a profound effect on the situation in Rome. Three things. First of all, wealthy landowners in, the, in a season of peace, right before those wars started, they started getting more and more stuff, and the, uh, they didn't have enough peasants and free people to work their land, so they started acquiring slaves. But then when Rome started going to war, in that second Punic War, and then the empire takes off, and whenever you have an empire, you have to have armies to defend that empire, right? So... Every citizen in Rome, landowners, free peasant farmers who used to work those lands, they were conscripted into the military. So now you have these vast tracts of land that need to produce food for the Roman armies. Who's going to work that land? Slaves. The third thing is, is that in all of Rome's conquerings, they took back massive tens of thousands of slaves as captives, so in the year 146 BC, for example, 50,000 slaves came into Rome uh, from war conquerings. Okay, and what happened was, is by the first century, by the time that Paul and Je- or Jesus is ministering, and then Paul takes uh, his missionary journeys, Rome is considered a slave state. And what that means is, whenever you have 25 to 30 percent minimum population are slaves, then you're known as a slave state. 25 to 30%. In fact, to show how bad the problem was, in Rome uh, we have uh, copies of of, of a law case where somebody came in and said, hey, I think it would be a good idea if all slaves wore the same kind of outfit, like maybe a sash that was the same color. It got shot down in court. Why? Because a man said, I don't want the slaves to know how many of them there are they might revolt. So you have so much of the population in slavery. Now the interesting thing about Roman slavery is while there were definitely horrific conditions to some slaves, for example, minors, Like, if you worked in the mines, your life expectancy was less than seven years. Or gladiators, I mean, right, you're made to die, really. Uh, So you have that extreme, but then you have this whole other extreme of people who lived quite well. And in Rome, you could actually earn money and save it, and uh, and you could buy your way out. So by 30 years old, there were quite a few people who could buy their freedom. And in fact, Rome, uh, you might say it's a twisted kind of wisdom, used that to help people uh, be motivated to do a good job in their work. Because if they did a good job, they could earn money, and then they could earn their freedom. But to me, and hopefully to you, and I think the Christian worldview would be, slavery is still slavery. I don't care if you can buy your freedom by the time you're 30. uh, You may have just been a slave for 30 years, right? So the gospel says that before Christ... You and I and every person who's a disciple of Christ should submit to one another. We are, in Paul's words in Philippians 2, we are to view others as better than ourselves. So why then didn't Paul call for an an abolition uh, of slavery? Why didn't he just call it off? Well, first of all, I think there's pragmatic reasons. There were very few people in that world who even had a problem with slavery. Unless you were like the minor guy or the gladiator guy. Um, it was just like, it's hard to imagine, it's just kind of the way it was. There were only two groups, the Essenes and one other group, that actually even wrote anything against slavery. Even the great philosophers, right, were pro-slavery. But beyond that, you have to appreciate how tiny a movement Christianity was during the time of paul 's ministry, and joe's going to put a slide up that 's just going to help us to get an overview of that uh, in the year forty there 's roughly Christians are roughly point zero zero one seven of the population in the year fifty point zero zero two three of the population in the Roman Empire is Christian. And Paul is writing uh, this letter around 62 A.D., uh, between the 50 and 100. So even if you go to the year 100 A.D., 0.0126% of the population. That is a tiny little voice. Amazing how fast it grows, by the way, if we just jump up to 350 and see the 56% population. Thanks, Joe. So for Paul to call to the end of the economic engine and the family support system of Rome would have meant probably certain death for him and the Christian movement. See, in ethics, you have to consider at least three different angles. So there's the ideal. The ideal angle is from a Christian perspective, uh, slavery is wrong. 100% of the time it's wrong. The second thing you have to consider is what is the reality? Well, the reality is that Paul was ministering in a slave state with 25 to 30% of the people being slaves. It is the absolute backbone of how Rome worked. So then the third thing you have to consider is you have your ideal and you have your real. You have to say, well, what is actually possible? And you can think about things in our own political system in those types of terms. Uh, sometimes it's overly simplistic, but I'm trying to preach a sermon, not teach class. So, uh, so you know, Paul, Paul looks at the situation, slavery's wrong but I'm ministering in a place that absolutely takes it for granted, that slaves are just the way it is. What is actually possible? Maybe legislating freedom of slaves isn't going to happen when you're point whatever percent of the population, but maybe changing people's hearts one by one will actually transform them into something better in the first place. The primary reason I believe Paul did not call for an outright abolition to slavery, all the pragmatic stuff aside, is because I don't think it was Paul's primary agenda. It's the same reason that Jesus didn't heal every person he ever met. He didn't feed every hunger person he ever met. He didn't start a mega church while he was on earth, right? Jesus came for a specific purpose. God in the flesh, he's fulfilling all of the story of Israel. Israel. He came to go to the cross. He came to slay death. He came to rise from the grave. And He came to reign and to offer the promise of the kingdom of God. Paul's primary mission is to proclaim the good news that in Christ there is forgiveness and the power of the Holy Spirit to actually change our hearts into Jesus' type of heart. Instead of abolishing these relationships of marriage the way Rome had it set up, of parent-child relationships the way Rome had it set up, and of slave-master relationships the way Rome had it set up, instead of abolishing those things, he reimagines them. And I believe that when you reimagine marriage like Paul describes, you get a stronger, more loving marriage. And when you reimagine parent child relationships, you get strong, more loving families and churches and societies. And when you reimagine slave master relationships, the natural outflow is no more slavery. In fact, by the second century AD, slavery in Rome was all but done. If we look back at our chart, 2nd century AD, Christian population was 0.36 of the Roman Empire. Still a tiny little movement, but friends, mustard seed and leaven, a small seed of the gospel takes root, and it will not leave your heart unchanged. So how does the gospel then work out for Paul in the first century? Well, first, Paul calls on slaves to obey their masters. Now, from a Roman perspective, there's no surprise there. That's what they were supposed to do. But the interesting thing is that Paul calls masters, these masters that the slaves are supposed to obey, he calls them masters in the flesh. And then he says, the reason you're supposed to render service with sincerity of heart is you're supposed to do that unto the Lord. So, really, Paul is saying, your Lord is not your human master. It is Jesus. And when you render service and you're obedient, you're doing it unto Jesus. A gross stereotype of first century slaves was that they were lazy, they had the reputation of kind of slacking off when nobody was looking. I said it's a gross stereotype, I'm sure. Stereotypes come into play because somewhere sometime it was a reality, but it doesn't include everybody. But that was kind of the underlying assumption, was that all slaves were lazy. So they were known as ophthalma uh, which ophthalmas means eye, so think ophthalmologist, right? You go to ophthalmologist, get your eye worked on. And doulas means servant, or to serve. So some of you may, when you gave birth, had a doula right? So someone who comes alongside and serves. So these, uh, means eye pleasers, eye servers. So people who are just serving so that people, when they look at them, they say, oh, what a good job you're doing. The boss turns around and then they start slacking off again and looking on Facebook during work time, right? So Paul tells them that they are ultimately slaves of Christ. And their work is done unto Christ. And even better, they're going to receive a reward from Christ. So even if your boss or their boss never recognized the good work that they did, they could put their eggs in the basket of Jesus. Because his father is the same one with the same power who rose Jesus from the dead. And he says, that God who has all that power and all that integrity, he is the one who will give you a reward for your sincere work. Now here's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, We pointed it out last week, but this letter is being written to the church in Ephesus. And yet it clearly addresses husbands and wives and parents and children and masters and slaves. These people were worshiping together. It didn't say, hey, masters, make sure your slaves read this when you're done worshiping with your high-class people. Can you imagine that mixed worship? That was radical for the first century Roman culture. Men and women in one place. I think they sat on other sides of the room, but still under the same roof. Parents and children. I don't know if they had children's church, but at least they were in there together. And slaves and masters worshiping together. You guys, this is what happens when the gospel gets hold of a person in a community. It breaks down those old divisions of gender and class and ethnicity. So now and I just wonder if you could imagine that for a second. Probably not, because it's so weird, but like you're a slave owner and your slave is with you, or you're a slave and your owner's sitting next to you, you're all there, the whole family unit. And you're hearing this message from Paul where he talks about there's no longer slave or free, male or female, Jew or Gentile. He talks about how we're united in Christ. It's got to make you squirm a little bit and feel uncomfortable. Anyway. Now Paul turns to masters and tells them, this is crazy, do the same thing. Do the same thing. Work. Lead as if you're doing it unto Christ. Lead with sincerity of heart as to the Lord. Lead without threatening In the ancient world, um, masters would often use threats and abuse their power to keep slaves in line. So, for example, slaves couldn't legally get married. But sometimes masters would let uh, a husband or a man and a wife, or they couldn't get married. A man and a woman cohabitate. It's called concubinage. And sometimes kids would be produced from that. Legally, the child produced from those two slaves is the property of the master, so they would threaten and say, "Hey, I'm going to separate. I'm going to sell the wife and the child," and and they would uh, um, threaten to separate families like that. It was really an evil thing to do. Uh, but, you know, they could beat their slaves. Of course, you don't want to do that too much because then you're losing value on them. But they were seen as living tools. So Paul tells masters to turn away from the negative way of leadership and to turn toward leading well. Recognizing that the way they, this is radical, the way they treat their slaves is the way they treat Jesus. And that was the point of asking Meg to read from Matthew 25, just earlier. Whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Jesus takes our treatment of other people personally. Right? Like when Paul is persecuting the church, Jesus meets him on the road of Damascus. He says, why are you persecuting me? There's no partiality with Jesus. In the end, when he returns, the dead are going to be raised and they're going to be raised to judgment. They're going to stand before Jesus. And He isn't going to care if you were a slave or unemployed, or if you were a king or a CEO, or anything in between. See, in our world, we give privilege to those who we think can better our position. We give privilege. We we usually talk to people differently who dress nicely and have more money, have more position of power. But in Jesus' kingdom, no such privilege exists. And we're going to be judged, really, on how we treat others made in God's image. So, how does this apply to you and I? Thankfully, the institution of slavery, the institution of slavery, is abolished in the United States. It took way too long, and actually, it should have never happened. But if Paul and the early church had almost no positional authority in their culture, like their .00 whatever percent of the population, we have almost the opposite issue today. We have more wealth than almost any other place in the world. We live in a democratic society where we can say almost whatever we want and not be harmed, right? We have freedom of speech, more influence than ever before and ironically there are more slaves in the world today than ever before. And much of that slavery takes place in developing nations where the sex trade uh, is big business as well as labor and forced military service by warlords. And the problem is almost overwhelming. It's almost overwhelming. So what do we do? First, we allow the gospel to change hearts. We spread the good news of Jesus. Why? Because if people were not buying these slaves, and many Americans go over to these places and use these sex slaves, if people did not have a desire for them, if people did not uh, think it was okay that slavery was happening, we would put a stop to it. Because America pretty pretty much does whatever it wants in the world, right? The gospel has to change hearts. Another thing we can do to back that up is pray. Just pray. I confess, that's not a regular thing on my prayer agenda, is praying for the release of slaves. I mean, it would be if someone close to me was in that position. So this is, these are brothers and sisters. Uh, and when we pray, it is, it is the plow that goes before the planting. It is uh, the power of God not just legislation that changes hearts. And for a real practical step, if you haven't checked out the International Justice Mission, I encourage you, just Google IJM, and there will be all kinds of ways to get involved, from giving financially to prayer and everything in between. I, I met a guy up in Canada who's a, he's a kind of a SWAT team guy for Canadian Mounties, I don't know, I don't know if they wear the hats or not, That might give them away, but... This dude on his off time goes to Thailand with this special team, And he busts into brothels and, like, rescues women and little girls. Uh, So, anyway, if you want to do that, I don't know if you're trained or not, but anything in between, check out IJM. But human trafficking, unfortunately, is not just something that happens to those people over there. Uh, It happens right here in Whatcom County. And a starting point to get better acquainted with the issue and the solution, uh, I refer you to the nonprofit agency Access Freedom. Many of you know Anya Milton from Bellingham Covenant Church. She's a mom of two, uh, an excellent wife. She's just a regular lady. But she heard about this problem of human trafficking that's going on in Whatcom County, and God did something in her heart, and she said, I just can't sit by and let this happen. So she and a few others started this access freedom and basically it's a it's a hub of marshaling resources in our area for education uh, she works with law enforcement all kinds of different ways and if that's something that just pricking your heart that that's happening in our backyard actually in the hotel right over here on northwest uh, that with the lion on it what is that one it happens every week the police say that there's 16 year olds in there who have been taken brainwashed and now put into prostitution right here in whatcom county and it's very difficult It's very difficult to find the people in power. So there are ways that we can look out for this even in our own community. Um, The statistics are so bad that there will be people at risk when some of our daughters get a little bit older. There will be people at risk in even a population as small as Laird Streets. Finally, um, I think it's appropriate to carefully apply this text, carefully apply this text to our work and life situations we may not be slaves in the way of forced labor but we work and most of us work for one or more human beings Um, it would do us well to remember that ultimately whatever work we do inside or outside the home we can do that work unto the lord So we have a bunch of awesome teachers in this church um, professional teachers in different schools if you're a teacher you know that you can go through the motions um, and you can just kind of get paid and go home. I mean, that, but that doesn't happen in any of our teachers. But you, you could actually see your principal as Jesus. What if you were working for Jesus? And you could see your students as, what if they were little Jesuses? What if you were in charge of teaching Jesus when he was a kid? Or you could see those students' parents as being Jesus. Like, oh my gosh, that kid's parent is Jesus. How would I then treat them? How would I want to teach them? Uh, (laughs) Retail workers, you can go through another day with a plastic smile on your face or you can do your work with gusto as unto the Lord, seeing each piece of inventory as belonging to Jesus. Every cent at the end of the till, belonging to Jesus. Every person that's coming and annoying you and knocking stuff off the shelves as someone made in the image of the living God that Jesus loves Now, sometimes you may have to do a job that you just don't like. It's below your skill level. And I remember uh, after seven years in the Coast Guard, God very clearly said, you know, I want you to go into full-time ministry through a a number of different ways. He didn't like show up at my house and say that, but uh, so I got out after seven years. I was an E6. I was... I felt really competent in my job and I, you know, I was a leader and, and all of a sudden I start going back to school and I'm a construction laborer for a guy who loved to yell and I'm doing crappy jobs and crawling under houses with black widows and I hate spiders and I had to make a decision about how my attitude was going to be. It's like, I'm way above this job. Right? And I think each of us has to make those types of decisions. Are we going to cut corners and have a bad attitude? Or are we going to do our work, whatever it is, unto Jesus? He sees everything. The same Father who raised Jesus from the dead, friends, He's the same one who says, When you work with sincerity of heart, I have a reward for you. I have a reward for you that will not perish. In 1 Corinthians 7 Paul says that if a slave is able to buy his or her freedom, they should do that. He also says you should not sell yourself into slavery. Because when we are slaves of a person or an empire or a corporation, we are less free to serve our true master Jesus I have met people, and so have you, in the 21st century, who have basically sold themselves into corporate slavery. Slavery out of pursuit to make more money, to have more material possessions. But at what cost? At the cost of your health, at the cost of your family, at the cost of your friends, at the cost of your call to make disciples of Jesus. I've met small business owners who have turned their jobs into their mistresses. Because they're aiming to please a shadow of a father or a mother or some impossible standard. Friends, there's slaves among us walking around. We, as disciples of Jesus, the Bible says over and over, we're slaves of him. I know, we don't like that language. But I tell you, I'd rather be a slave of a guy who put a towel around his waist and washed his disciples' feet. I'd rather be a slave of a god who gave his life for us than any of you. And I love you, but you know what I mean? So we are slaves of Jesus, and when we sell ourselves into slavery to other things, the Bible says we can't have two masters. Now, a few of you might actually be bosses of somebody else. And if you are, your employees are Jesus' authorized agents to receive what you owe the master you store up for yourself treasures in heaven when you treat people as though they're made in God's image. And for the rest of us who aren't masters, you thought you were off the hook just there, we are still very privileged in our culture. The last time you went out to eat, somebody made your food. Somebody served you at your table. Unless you got takeout, then you would have to tip. But if you've ever stayed at a hotel, there is a whole staff of people who take special elevators called freight elevators that you don't take because they don't want to be seen. And they change your bed, and they make your food, and they clean up after you, and they're usually not from our country. All right? So we are very privileged if we've experienced those types of things. So if you work in a big building, do you know your janitor's name? If you work in a school? or, a, you know? Because part of this call for us is to see people. Jesus sees people. I remember the sermon that Sarah Matichik gave last year, I'm Sarah and Hagar. Who does Jesus see? Hagar, this Egyptian slave concubine. To the Israelites, an Egyptian slave woman, nobody pays attention to her. She gets to, she's the first person to name God the one who sees me. God sees you, and he sees the people around us that sometimes we don't take the time to see. And when we make eye contact, when we give someone the common courtesy of a greeting that we would give one of our influential friends, we extend value, we extend blessing, we say, you are worth just as much as anyone else. The overriding message in the gospel, in this passage, is that in Christ we are the same. We are all sinners. We are all deserving of death. We are all desperately in need of a Savior. We are all invited to trust Jesus as that Savior, trust Jesus as the slayer of death, trust Jesus as the emancipator of slavery, and trust Jesus as our new loving and holy good Master. My question to close on is, will you receive Him as your one and only Master? Will you allow Him to give you new life? I invite you to respond in prayer. Lord Jesus, for some making a decision for the first time to call you Master and Lord and Savior, I pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, would touch those hearts and transform and Holy Spirit, you would bring affirmation. Affirmation that through faith in Jesus we are adopted into God's family. And Lord, those for those of us who have been walking, stumbling behind you for some time, and recognizing afresh that we may have more than one master in our lives, forgive us, Lord. Give us boldness and courage to say no to those false um, idols we've been serving and to say yes to you. The only master we will ever find will give yourself for us. Amen.